Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Marketing Management Money here with Ryan and Ethan. So, um, this is something that's been on my mind a lot, and I'm going to ask you for some advice. This is going to be a little bit more of a free flow uh, episode where I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to the question that I have, but this is something that I've been dealing with on, on several fronts. Uh, one is uh, working with a, a business, and one is a, a project that I'm actually working on. Uh, I'll share more details about the project that I'm working on because, you know, I, I can... I can share as much as I want about it, right? So the question is when to give up on an initiative, on, you know, trying to push the envelope. Uh, there's the expression, you know, you've got the leading edge or is it the bleeding edge? Uh, I always look at it and I say, you know, the guy who has to clear the path will always move slower than the guy who gets to come after him on a clear path. And so, you know, if you picture building a road and one guy's out there, you know, like clearing trees and moving rocks and the other guy's out there enjoying the fruits of a nice path to just walk on. And so in business, we're always trying to push the limits, push the envelope, make something new happen. And the flip side is, is if you do nothing, you're going to die. Like if you're not innovative at all, uh, you're going to die. And and I'm going to put a definition of innovation out there and then we'll turn it more into a discussion. But uh, I think that Walmart is a really fascinating example of innovation because you look at Walmart and you don't think innovation. There's nothing innovative about Walmart. But one of the reasons why Walmart became so popular on the onset, this is back when Walmart and Kmart were like going head to head. And Kmart was a much bigger company at the time. You know, uh, originally right. Kmart was the, uh, you know, it kind of the powerhouse. Yeah. And, and so Walmart, they invested heavily in inventory management. Uh, they, they were very high tech and, you know, at a time, uh, you could argue that they were the most high-tech company on the earth when it came to inventory management. And so when you walk in the store and you look at, you know, all the same brands, the the same mass-produced items, and you think, well, there's no innovation here. I'm like, well, it was all on the back end for them. And, and there are countless examples of where, you know, innovation comes in. So you might not be selling innovation, but you still have to be innovative, innovative. If, if you want to survive as a company. So when do you push forward? When do you call it quits and say, okay, you know, we've, we've dumped enough money. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're chasing a rabbit hole. We need to get back to the basics. And I don't know. Well, and it, it's compounded when the one project is the whole project, right? So if I'm in a startup <laughs> phase and this <laughs> all point. hinges on it versus am I established and I'm exploring with some research and development, some other innovative ideas that the business over here has the cash flow to help carry this yeah. versus I, I'm investing my life savings or I'm investing know everything out of my bank account on this idea as I move forward hoping that it's going to become something right so you're right it I probably would split those two apart because a natural company doing R&D is a different model than uh, like in like one of your scenarios it's literally potentially a startup well okay so let me let me share my scenario and we we can use this as as kind of a you know an example to discuss 
So back in, I think it was 2006. I'd, I'd have to like go through and dig to find out for sure, but I believe it was 2006. So at the time, um, I was, so we, I fairly newly married and we had just uh, finished a lease on our uh, apartment and we were going to move into a different apartment. And we were in between apartments for just a short period of time and I didn't want to lock myself into a lease and I needed just a short-term place to stay. So my sister said, well, you know, come move in with me and, you know, you can figure out what you're going to do. And so it was perfect. Uh, me and my wife were going to school at the time. So, you know, a chance mm-hmm. to get some free rent was awesome. <laughs> so um, anyway, we went ahead and we moved in with my sister and we got into this little uh, ritual of every night we would play games. And one of the games that we would play often was that classic game of Clue. Right. And I started noticing, I mean, this is just how my brain works. I'm very analytical. I started noticing that Clue always gravitated to almost the same outcome. And it frustrated me because everyone would figure out the person and the weapon really easily. And then the room would take forever because there's more rooms and you have to travel to them. And so it was almost the luck of the dice of who could get to the room first, not necessarily how creative you are, you know, with deductive reasoning and things like that. So I thought to myself, okay, there's a better game out there. We can do a better game. And so I decided to develop this game. Uh, And this is kind of like a side hobby that I've had. I love developing games. Uh, I've done it since I was a little kid. And so I I developed this game based on how do you do a better murder mystery. And I actually came up with this game and uh, the mechanics of it, and it, it was really coming together really well. So I submitted this game to a game publisher in 2008. The game publisher was called Cambridge Game or Cambridge Game Factory, if I say that correctly. Uh, they're no longer around after the recession. Uh, it was a guy out of MIT who was doing it. And uh, after the recession, he decided that he was going to focus on engineering or something and not, not do the games and whatever. But so... Uh, he was working with me, and we were going to publish this game through Cambridge Game Factory. And so I was pretty excited that, you know, I was going to get a game published and everything. And then the recession hit. He focused on engineering, uh, you know, and long story short, I, I wasn't able to to do this game. So anyway, I've never let this game go. And I'm like, okay, I should do something with it. I should do something with it. And now I am, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to actually manufacture this game. And as I'm manufacturing it, I'm wanting to do it very hyper-local. So I'm using local printing, local manufacturing, uh, and, and that's just kind of what I'm moving toward. So 20 years almost, I've been pushing on this idea, pushing on this concept. And every time I show people some, you know, and I should clarify, that's not like day and night, 20 years. There would be three years at a time where I'm like, yeah, I haven't touched it, you know. So this isn't like all I've done for 20 years. But for a 20-year period of time, I haven't let this thing go. But it's only recently that you've arguably heavily invested in it. I, yeah, so prior to recent, I invested time 
now I'm into it with capital. Right. Uh, I've, I've purchased some equipment. Uh, I've made commitments to companies. Prototypes. That, yeah. So uh, I, I'm, I'm now, you know, I, I'm actually contractually obligated, uh, not significantly, but enough that if I back out, I have to, you know, pay the right. difference of, of, of this contract. So, so yes, I, I am now invested into this. I still have not gotten proof of concept. The game works fine, but I don't have proof of concept on the manufacturing. So do I just keep pushing forward, having tenacity? Because, you know, you look at successful entrepreneurs, they are tenacious. But there's also this idea of holding on to the wrong thing. You know, it, it can kill you. It can kill your so, business. So let me, all right. So I'm going to ask some questions because. <laughs> Is this now a therapy session? <laughs> no, because, um, you know, some things you say are red flags, but at the same time, they may not be. And that's the challenge. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, what, what research, belief, facts, numbers do you have that, that at some level, if you continue to pursue this, it's successful? Okay. Because you have some background on that. I have some background on that. And I want to... And, and that's, anyways, one of my points that I want to bring up is that as you're weighing that out, uh, if you don't have data to back something, that might be a huge red flag to say, okay, maybe I should stop. So, But you have some data. I have some data. Okay. So I've actually, I've run an analysis of, and now mind you, this is a different type of game than what you would find if you went to a place like Walmart or Target and they have their game shelf and, you know, you pick right. up the Monopoly and the, uh, you know, Ticket to Ride and Settlers of Catan and Scrabble and, you know, every version of Uno, Uno you can think of. Uh, this is this is a different type of game, and so people that w the target market would be people that are you know I would call them gamers, or uh, I usually say Euro gaming because there was a big movement. It started with Settlers of Catan back in I believe the 1980s, when a different style or type of game really started to develop. So. Anyway, looking at that target market, going off of what that target market uh, purchases, I did an analysis of the top 100 games that are on the market today. And I actually put it into a spread. This is how nerdy I got, right? So I put it into a spreadsheet. Not only did I look at the price uh, to make sure that I had enough of a price swing, because when I tell people, so I'm looking at charging a retail price of, you know, 120, 140 bucks retail price. And a lot of people are like, whoa, that's really expensive. And I'm like, well, there's a game right now that is a very popular game. Uh, it's selling for retail of just under $400. And if you're not a gamer, that seems ridiculous. That's right. So I, I, I guess for, for benefit of this podcast, I want to say know your target audience. Because if you don't know your target audience, like if, if I talk. If you're just creating the game to create it, right? Yeah. And so, 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 well, this is, so let me stray for just a minute because, uh, stray, my, I thought we were already <laughs> all over the place, <laughs> um, to bring up another point home because it, it, you may be looking at a retailer or a gaming or a manufacturing, but what's interesting is I had a very similar conversation with a gentleman 
who's in the housing industry. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, through a housing, because right now most of the uh, Mountain West, okay, has a major housing crisis and most communities need more houses. And so there's discussions happening about uh, affordable housing, not an affordable meaning uh, the average working person, okay, sure. not, not yeah. low income or subsidized. Okay. okay. So the working person out there uh, who's working at your local manufacturing, welding shop, grocery store, how, how do they afford a house right now? Because yeah. right now it's crazy. So, right. Affordable housing for the working person. Um, what was really interesting is in my conversations with him and trying to better understand uh, the housing industry from a contractor's perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you have government, you have contractors. I mean, you have multiple components that all have to come together to really make a decent housing development. He made the comment that um, before you build the first house and start that subdivision, you need to know who your target market is. What are the demographics? How much can they afford? What are their family sizes? Uh, it was interesting that he did the exact same thing that I I didn't even think about. I thought just build houses, right? But from that perspective, that contractor, which they do huge developments, okay, he actually said exactly the same things that you preach all the time, and that is target market. Who are they? And we're going to build it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't care what industry you're in. And I, I share that example of saying, look, uh, retail versus construction, they're still target marketing who they're building it and doing it for. Well, and I think, so if you're on to the right target market, when you tell someone who's out of the industry, they should look at you a little puzzled. They should be like, really? That's your target market? And and I'm not saying that you should have weird target markets. I'm saying that the reason why they should be puzzled is because it should be so dialed in that you're describing someone that they're like, hmm, I would have never pictured that, you know, because you, you talked about the, um, you know, the housing situation and you said, okay, for working, you know, for working uh, families. And most people would stop there and they would say, okay, my target market is working families. You know, medium household income is, and I forget where it's at right now. It's like sixty or seventy thousand yeah. dollars here in the state of Utah, and, and so you say, okay, you know, that's my target market. Is anyone who makes sixty or seventy thousand dollars? And I'm like, no, that is not your target market. That's a piece of it. That's right. And, and then you need to start looking at it, and you need to say, okay, who's really making the buying decision? Is it the husband or the wife, or maybe it's non-traditional families? You know, how many people, because you go back 10, 20 years, it was always husband and wife, husband and wife. Now you have people that, you know, their boyfriend and girlfriend or, you know, uh, boyfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, they're buying a house together. And you would have never seen that 20 years ago. It would have been weird. But today it's not. So maybe, you know, that could be, and you were starting to get into the the psychographics of, okay, What, what, what are this person's relationship choices? What age are they when they're getting into a relationship, you know, and, and understanding that and how confident do they have to be in their job prospects? Because that's a huge buying decision is, you know, I might have the money, but if I don't trust my job's going to be there in a year, I, I, I look at the programming industry right now, computer programming, coding. Oh my gosh. It is just on fire, but the turnover there can be horrible. (laughs) 
And so, you know, I, I know guys that are clearing six figures and they've been laid off three times in five years. And, and so, like, do you want to buy a house? So I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm off so, on a tangent. <laughs> well, so you've isolated gamers down as a target market, okay? And then you've done a lot of research around them, what they're willing to pay, uh, what are their, some of their favorite games, you know? Uh, so you've done a lot of homework about them specifically doing that, and then you base the model around that. But now you come into now you got to have production costs because you have to produce well, it now. Well, well, hang on. I want to go back to okay. the gaming uh, target market and demographic because this is where I make my first forecasted prediction. And it's important to make forecasted predictions, but what am I basing this on? I don't know. Okay, so I'll, get, I'll give the, the tangible of this. You said, you know, I know gamers and I know what they want. And I'm like, yeah, I know people that they literally have a wall of nothing but games. I guarantee there are games on that wall that they've played once or twice and they're still paying 80 bucks for that game and they keep buying more games. You know, that's their thing. And this is not, you know, like, oh, here's the one person who does this. Like, this is fairly common. You get a lot of closet gamers. It's weird when I talk to people, they're like, Oh yeah, I'm a gamer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what's, what's the passcode to, you know, to do this. So anyway, Euro gaming became popular because it introduced a level of strategic thinking that has enough of a chance element to it that the, it's not always the, you know, the smartest player who's going to win. So you take chess, right? Chess is pretty much, you know, whoever knows how to play chess better is going to win. And so it's very frustrating for someone who isn't as good of a chess player because you get pummeled because, you know, it's so logical, right? And so they, they introduce enough chance to it that um, that it just tips the scales so that it's not always the same outcome. And then there's also this... Um, this idea of, of play where it needs to develop quickly. So you take some classic games like Monopoly and Risk. Uh, my kids actually wanted to play Monopoly uh, on Sunday, and so we sat down and played Monopoly. And I remembered why I don't play this game very often. <laughs> like it was. You have three kids that now hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I did win. Yes. <laughs> so it was obvious that I was going to win this game and it took another 45 minutes for me to win. Yeah. And so Eurogaming has, they, they try to eliminate that, you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of, okay. you know, game. And they say, okay, we're going to go for a quick finish. When someone gets the advantage, they finish off within very few turns. So you don't just keep going around and be like, do I have to? Okay. You know, right, and right. so, okay. so anyway, so you've got these mechanics that really exploded this new genre of games. This is my forecast, my prediction. I think that people are a little tired of this and they're looking for something new. This has been going on. It was, you know, big in the, the 90s and the 2000s. Here we are, you know, 2023. I had to think about that. And it's, I think people want the next new. Right. Well, now I'm trying to guess what the next new is. 
I'm trying to do something that is is different. So the game that I've created, it has some of those mechanics, but it also has some unique mechanics to it. And so that's the problem is you ask me, you're like, okay, does your target market want this? And I'm like, yes, I think. Maybe. <laughs> and if I go with the, the safe bet, I'll never win big because that idea is saturated, you know. But if I go with the risky bet, it's a risky bet. Well, but anything innovative has a high level of risk to start with. Yeah, otherwise, it's not innovative. I. I think a great example, and I'll let you keep going because I've, I've been I've been rambling on for a second. But a great example is smartphone technology, right? When smartphones first came out, whoa! I mean, that was so cool, and those companies made a lot of money on those, right? And now, you know, what's the difference between the uh, you know iPhone? What 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 number are we even at? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Okay, you know, the difference between the fourteen and the fifteen is like now. In a bigger screen. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> now in blue. Now in titanium, it's lighter. <laughs> Which I do want one. <laughs> I love titanium. So <laughs> that's another story for another day. But, <laughs> but you know, so so that's kind of the the dilemma is okay. You know, do you push the envelope? Do you do you be the new, you know, touchscreen technology that really changes, you know, cell phones? But, yeah, well, I'm, I always encourage people that you need to explore that, even though you never know how the consumer is going to react. Because there's been a lot of actually interesting innovations that have come out that consumers have said, nah, it's not, it, it's too cumbersome or it's not quite, it's not moving us to the next direction. It's not... You know what I mean? Uh, like cameras on phones, that innovation is almost now decimated the high-end camera market. Sure. And yeah. it's going to probably continue to, to do that because the cameras on phones are becoming pretty amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so that's, you know, you know, we can look and show areas that have done it. However, so now getting back to yours, because if, if we're going to stay on innovation and when you call it quits or not, okay, <laughs> Um. Uh, at some time, at point in time, you have to create a prototype. You can stay with an idea all you want, but ideas, I mean, if you go look at the U.S. patents, there are millions of patents that never, that just the idea on paper was put down, but a prototype was never created. Yeah. And you can't, my argument is you can never move to the next level until you get the prototype, which means you have a cost to invest in that prototype. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's a little bit, and this is just coming from my personal experience. However, when I say personal experience, I'm, I'm expanding beyond just the game because I've worked with other companies on getting products out there and their prototyping process. Prototyping is so expensive, and you right. need to plan on this. That's right. So, you know, you look at this, and, and – so for brevity's sake, I'm going to say that I'm trying to manufacture my game for under 50 bucks per game. Like, it's expensive to actually manufacture this. Very expensive. And I know that there are things that I could do. Uh, again, I'm trying to go hyper-local. And so I know that that's adding cost to it. But there's a lot of components to the game, right? 
And so if I'm trying to stay under 50 bucks for that, and I don't think I'll be able to do it. Like right now, my current uh, expected costs uh, to manufacture are just over $60 per game, right? And so I'm looking at this. My costs to prototype are closer to $2,000, you know? And, 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 and so... Well, but that's not even... I'd make an argument. That's not even counting your... That's not intellectual my, property, your brain power no, and your time. No, that this That's is strictly costs that I forked out to someone else. Yeah. So if, if I've got something that I'm trying to sell for six or not trying to sell for $60, I'm trying to sell it for like, you know, 120, 150 bucks. Right. Uh, but to prototype that thing, it, it should be a $60 unit. It's $2,000 to prototype and I'm not done, you know? Right. And, and so, you know, if you look at this, I would say you're going to have a factor of like, times it by 50 to 100 to get an idea of what it's going to cost you to prototype so, something relative to its cost. Did you did you have a limit when you started the prototyping process? Oh. I never asked you that question. I mean, did you, even a soft number in the back of your head, like, all right, as I look into this one, if it starts to get above this one, I have to call it quits. So uh, three grand was what I put down, and I said, if I can't get something off the ground for three grand. Now, these are pretty small numbers, but I'm dealing with a single game, right? Right. You're just trying to create one. One, yeah. And, and, then, so, and then if logistics work out after that, then you'll invest more to mass produce something. Yeah. And, and so, so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, three grand. Now I should also clarify this. I have a very different style. So I've worked with a lot of prototypers um, and I've seen people. Uh, so I'm on the very low end. I try and keep my costs very low. So one of my business philosophies is make it more difficult for yourself. Uh, it It's kind of like a training philosophy. So if you see those uh, sprinters and they'll wear like the weighted vests and then they go sprint so that when they take the weighted vest off, they feel like they're lighter and they can go faster. I use that same kind of philosophy in business as I'm like, okay, make it difficult on purpose. Give yourself restrictions so that you have to think through and really problem solve. I know a lot of people, you know, the, the fail fast concept where there's like, no. Just throw the money at it, throw the money at it. Some businesses are in a position to do that, you know, where where they're right. like, okay, you know, we're we're gonna go, you know, we're gonna go big with this. Um and so anyway, for me to get a prototype out, I said if I can't get a prototype out for three grand on a board game, then you know, I'm gonna I don't know if I could give up. That's the, that's the problem. I'm married to this idea. 20 years. Oh. Well, all right. So staying on the same subject and switching from startup, one type of a product, to because uh, there's another component that you have dealt with in another side of your life where you work with manufacturers who, are, who have an R&D side of their organization mm -hmm. that explore this same issue, even though the risks... Arguably, they're not as high because we we have income that's already coming in. Yeah. So explain, talk about that one as well, because someone might be a little bit bigger and needing to explore that. We have an established product. We have uh, income coming in. It's not an isolated one thing that we're just trying to get off the ground. So great. Yeah. 
gr- great thing to consider. And I want to, we, we alluded to this, but I really want to dive into this. When I say three grand, these are just capital, capital costs. There is no labor or intellectual property that is going into this. Now, I'm doing this as a hobby. And if I were to look at the amount of hours that I put in over the years, oh my gosh, you know, I would probably be into this thing. I don't know. It's, it's over a thousand hours. I guarantee that it's probably like 5,000 hours, you know, <laughs> and that feels like a lot. That's probably too much, but I guarantee that I'm over a thousand hours, you know? So anyway, if you're in a company you're paying a, a wage to those hours. Like me, I'm treating this as a hobby. And, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll just chip away at it, right? Um, but if I'm in a company, I'm paying for those hours. And I see this happen a lot when people innovate something. Now, you mentioned that they have an R&D department. I'm actually going to counter that with most people that I see do this don't have an R&D department and don't think they're innovating. They just have an idea. Owners of the company trying to make a product better. Yeah. Like you get an owner of the company who, you know, they're in the back tinkering on something. They're like, this isn't R and D. I don't do all that fancy R and D stuff. I'm like, that's what you're doing right now. Or, you know, trying to improve a software. I see, I see companies spend a lot of time. They will invest serious money into software and then They'll spend the next two years trying to get familiar with this software. And I'm like, okay, so you paid $20,000 for that software program, or I mean, it could be significantly more than that. I mean, I know people that have paid 300000 to a million on a software program. I'm like, whew, that's, right. you know. And so, but I'm just going to say, you know, you paid $20,000 on the software program, keeping it a little bit more in line with where most small businesses are, are shopping. Right. And then you're going to spend the next two years trying to implement this. And so first off, the highest paid employees in the company are the ones that are spending the time on this. And so, you know, you're looking at at a wage that could be 50 to 100 bucks an hour, depending on what their you know salary package is or their owner's draw might be. You know, so 50 to 100 bucks an hour. And then I'm doing this for two years. I get that it's not full time. But still, I, I could dump in another 1000 to, you know, 3000 a week times that by 50 weeks, you know, and, right. and I'm now into this thing another few hundred thousand dollars of learning curve of expense that, you know, that went to a labor cost. And I, I hope that, you know, if you're listening to this, I hope you understand that I'm throwing out some very quick hypothetical numbers. The, these numbers are not based on, you know, case studies or specific examples. I'm just throwing out hypothetical numbers to illustrate a point, to say that, you know, your software cost is not your most expensive cost. It's the implementation that is going to... Labor almost is always the expensive. However... I have run into some scenarios where they need a new piece of equipment yeah. in order to create that innovation. Um, and my argument is always never, never buy that piece of equipment unless it can do more than just the innovation you're wanting it to do. Yeah. Right. If it enhances other parts of your organization, I'm fantastic with it because if that one innovation doesn't come to fruition, 
now you're trying to figure out how do I use that piece of equipment now that this one is not going to produce the revenue that we thought it would. So, but if I know that it can do other things in the meantime and make me more efficient on other things, fantastic. Those are, those are the best case scenarios when it comes to equipment. Yeah. And I mean, old equipment, it works really well because everyone knows how to use it. They know how to repair it. They, you know, yes. (laughs) And, and it, you, you might, you know, improve efficiencies by 20% on new equipment. Again, just throwing out a number, but if you're improving efficiencies by 20% with this new piece of equipment, but your learning curve is costing you 30%, you're now down 10%. Yeah. You know, that old clunky piece of equipment was more efficient than this really fast, you know. Yeah. And, and and so yeah, that gets that gets interesting. So that brings me to this question and there there's still a lot that that I have on this episode. I don't know if this is gonna bleed into a second one. <laughs> we'll see. But when do you call it quits? When do you say, hey, you know, because you asked me, like, do I have a threshold? And, well, let me be honest about that that $3,000 threshold. That was a number. I ran a calculation of what I estimated it would cost to get this off the ground. So is it a threshold? No. It's, a, you know, an estimated cost. If that doesn't work, I probably will put more money in. So this, this is my... <laughs> I'm married to this. Should I be married to it? Well, I, this this is always going to be my argument to anyone when they get in that scenario. And I, I use the, um, if I'm going to Vegas, okay, um, and I'm gonna, I know I'm going to gamble, I set aside my 200 bucks or whatever it is that I'm going to gamble with, and when it's gone, it's gone. Dude, right? you haven't been to Vegas for a while. 200 bucks. I was like, that's 30 minutes. But but that number that I set aside was the number that I said, okay, if I lose this, it's not going to affect anything else I do. Here's, and I know that's, and I know that's conservative. Now there's some, there's some flex in there, but generally the rule of thumb is, is at some point in time, your investment, if you don't, get to a level where you can see return coming back, okay, um, you, you can go down a road that's going to cost you significantly more than just the loss of a project. So, so let, let, me, let I mean, me put it into a different framework because I think this is I, – I get what you're saying with the whole gambling thing, but the problem is the gambling thing, you're going into it expecting to lose the two. You should be going into it expecting to lose the no 200. No one does, though. Well, okay, can I move it to the stock even though, market? Even though we kind of know that we will. Yeah, the stock market. So the, you never think you're going to lose in the stock market. So, so the, to me, gambling gambling is entertainment, yeah. right? And I get that. I we could do a whole episode on you know right. the psychology okay. behind gambling and the different personalities and all that kind of stuff. And yes, a lot of that transfers over to business and the stock market. But I want to talk the stock market for a second. So I buy a stock. Right, and I'm now invested in this stock, and I expect that stock to go up. Well, sometimes that stock goes down. Or here's the better question: Even if it goes up, when do I sell? When do I sell? Now, if if you're a smart investor in the stock market, you've followed patterns because the stock market mm-hmm. has so much data. There's infinite data 
about when to buy, when to sell, what strategies to use. And so you could find a formula and plug it in and say, you know, I'm following this person's method or, you know, I, I, I'm using this software and it, you know, it, it alerts me when it's a good time to sell, whatever, right? In business, we don't have all of that nice package data. Now, we should, you know, like right. we started off this episode, you were asking me what data did I did I get? Well, and the more innovative the idea is, the less data there is, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And, and, and so, yeah, it's nice to say, okay, here's my gambling budget, and when it's gone, it's gone. But on innovation, I, I don't feel it works that way because what happens is you make strides forward, and you're like, okay, you know, we're moving in the right direction. If this goes big, it'll go big. I... So with this game uh, example, I uh, I actually my brother he was uh, he was interested in the game. He's like, you've been working on this a while. I'm like, yeah, I've been working on this a while. He's like, can I dump some money into that? And I told him, I'm like, uh, it's not a good investment. Like <laughs> 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 like this is not where to dump your money. And he's like, I, I'm not. I'm not investing in the money. I'm investing in you. Like, I want to see where this goes. And he's like, and I'd like to be part of it. And so I told him, I'm like, let me think about it, right? And so I put down some some scenarios for him. And I said, look, and I said, I'm only looking at the money side of this. I said, there's about, you know, 20, 30% chance that any money that you give me is just going to be gone. And I said, and there's about a 60-ish percent chance that it'll break even. You know, like you'll put some money in. We could probably sell enough games to get that money. In. We're, we're dealing with small numbers, right? You know? And I said, and there's like maybe a 5% chance that this is going to go anywhere. You know, I'm like, that's why I'm saying this is not a good investment. And, uh, and so he, he says to me, he's like, so you're telling me that I've got like a 65% chance that I either break even or it goes somewhere? Sounds good to me. I'm like, well, yeah, but most of that is break even. And he's like, but again, I don't care. And so he was willing to, you know, he was willing to support the innovation because, you know, like it, it, it felt like there, there wasn't a lot of downside risk to it. But that's kind of how we get into the stock market is, you know, we'll be in the stock market and we'll say, oh, you know, sure, I could lose everything in the stock market, but, you know, and then we invest in the stock market. But still, don't you feel that there is, uh, at some level, you should set some budget? So with his money, I did, you know, so he, he's like, I want to put some money in, I, you know, I want to support this. And so I put together, uh, you know, I put together a, a written agreement and I'm like, okay, this is how much money you're putting in. This is where the money is going to be spent. If this happens, this is the money you'll get back. If it doesn't happen, like I'm not giving you anything back. He's like, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I made him sign it. You know, even though he's my brother, I'm like, I made him say, that was actually his request. He's like, we're signing something. You know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I think that's a good request. And so, so yeah, we have on paper, these are the threshold. This is when you, you know, this is when you make money. This is when you lose money. This is, you know. But you, you're far enough along in the prototype stage that 
that you're going to actually produce some and take them to market. Yeah. Okay. So there's a high enough level of confidence through everything that you've been doing so far and the investment into it hasn't broken the budget to where you can't take something to market. Okay. So uh, at what point in time when you take it to market now, because we've, you know, that's the last stage of this. Do you say, okay, it isn't, it is or isn't going to make it and I should cut my losses. So that one's difficult. Uh, I was actually talking to my brother and I said, Hey, we're actually, we're looking good to get an initial run. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna produce, uh, about 50 games. And he's like, cool. He's actually already pre-sold two of them. And, uh, and so he's like, yeah, you know, this, this is great. I've been telling people about it. They're excited. Uh, and he's pre-sold them at the, that, that expensive price. They're like, oh yeah, we don't care, you know? And, and so, um, so the problem comes in and this is where I don't think people recognize, this is a whole cash flow thing. Like if you want to understand the challenges of cash flow, try and launch something like this because you've got the prototypes, you've got the R and D, then you have to do the inventory. Right. And by the time I get any of that money back, you know, and the funny thing is, is so if I'm going to stay with these onesie twosies, eh, no big deal. It jumps up pretty quickly. Like we were looking at doing a show. We've got a show coming up that would be a great place to showcase the game. It'd be a lot of fun. You know, we're looking forward to it. And I sat down with him. I'm like, hey, you know what? To do this show, it's $20,000. And all of a sudden, it's like, hmm, we went from a hobby to, okay, you know, one show. Are we going to invest $20,000 into that show? And, and it, it, you know, it starts to compound pretty quickly. Now, here's the crazy thing, and this is a really important takeaway. I'm dealing with a small nothing if you're a business, right. you know, like I, and, and I'm using this example not to say, hey, you know, here's a great business example. I'm using this example because I can talk about it openly and give some specifics. You know, I, I've got a business that I'm working with that they are looking at um, doing a, a product launch. And just to test the waters, I ran a calculation for them and I said, if you can test the waters for under a quarter million, That'd be pretty impressive. And this is for two products. No, well, technically four products. You know, two products with with two different variations of that. And, and that's not uncommon if you're an established organization. Yeah. And, and so when I'm sitting here saying, oh, $20,000, that's because that's coming out of my personal back pocket. That's not a, you know, well, I mean, I'll, I'll do some tax write-offs on it and whatnot. But... Um, but yeah, that's coming out of my personal back pocket. But if you get into a business and it's like, yeah, are you willing to put down your, you know, $400,000 to see this, see if this product is going to work? And, And that's not uncommon. Those aren't big numbers. You know, those are like, I'm a small business. I'm trying to do something, you know, and it, it gets crazy. You know, and I just talked to a guy, this is unrelated to uh, manufacturing something, but I just talked to a guy that told me that uh, his, I don't remember if it was his father or father-in-law, invested in a business, the market shifted on him, he lost the business, and it was his retirement. Yeah. And I'm like... I've seen that scenario at least five times in people I've had conversations, worked with or had conversations with. 
Because if I'm a small business and I need $400,000, where do I get it from? Retirement. Look right. at all that money sitting right there. Well, and we have, right now, you're kind of on the tail end of the, the last of the baby boomers that are retiring. Uh, but I'm finding a lot of baby boomers aren't really wanting to retire per se. They still want something to do and they're investing in now hobbies and other things that they think can make a living that don't feel are as time consuming or restrictive or they've always wanted to do type of a thing. And because most baby boomers have been really loyal to organizations. That was one of their characteristics is high loyalty. The younger generations don't have any of that. Right. So, so now that they no longer have that loyalty, now they're exploring some of their own stuff and using their own cash to invest in it. And I've seen at least five in the last 10 years that have gone bad, really mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. Yeah. And then now they live off of their kids. Which goes back to, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to wrap this episode up. So maybe, maybe we'll do some fun. Well, I guarantee we'll do some follow up because I'm going to let I'm going to let the audience know when the game is is ready, you know, and I'll 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 show off the game because I I think it's going to I think it's going to go through. I you know, I've got one major piece of the manufacturing that has not been solved. Everything else is minor pieces that I'm like, yeah, I think it's just a question of working through that. There's this one major piece that I'm like, I'm confident that it will go through, but. That's just me being confident. You yeah. know, if I were to put real numbers to it, I'm like, yeah, there's honestly like maybe a 60% chance of success, which means there's 40% chance of failure <laughs> out <Yeah>. there. <laughs> well, and, and the last piece I would bring up is, you, is you've kind of looked at those stages you've gone through that a lot of people get to that point. Now, they, now they're ready to hit the market. But in this whole process, <clears throat> you, they failed or you have failed to, Say, all right, how much money do I need to be allocating earlier in this game for marketing? Because you can think you can do it through a social media effort, and to some degree you can, but there's still money involved if you actually want to get it in there and get it into the, especially if there's a target market in front of their face. So here's the stupid thing. I do this professionally. I have an advanced degree, you know, like I've got an MBA in Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. I do a podcast. I consult with businesses. Professionally, I do marketing strategies. And I overlooked that. (laughs) You know, because I'm looking at people ask me all the time. They're like, well, how are you going to sell your game? I'm like, I don't know. Well, I'll I figure don't that, that out. I don't know that you've overlooked it because you've done oh, a lot I've of Oh, I've overlooked it. I, I, you think you've overlooked it so much that uh, you... Uh, see, I've I neglected probably, it. L- l- maybe I should okay. say it that way. I haven't given it the attention that I should. If I was consulting me as a business, I would well, say, where's your marketing but you plan? Made, and I would, so to support your argument, I would probably say you've made the classic example that you get so caught up in the research and development and the prototypes that finally when you have something, it's kind of like, Oh, I got to market this. Right. Instead of wait a minute, as I'm going through this one, okay, I can't, I've got to have money for marketing. I've got to make sure that I don't touch certain pots or allocate money because it does. It's amazing how it just creeps up on you. And, and, and that's a really good, maybe, maybe we'll wrap up with that because that's an excellent takeaway is I don't care if you're doing something on the side or, and this is where it's more critical, if you are in a business, especially if you're the owner, the one who's ultimately making decisions, you're going to get caught up in whatever 
piece you're going to get caught up in and right. you will ignore something, something. And so, you know, the, the marketing is a typical one because the R&D is fun, you know, innovating, That's like right. you're, you're building stuff, and you're you start making to stuff. see prototypes coming out or things coming together. You know, and But even beyond the marketing, I think the bigger one that gets ignored is the inventory management. Yes. Because there's nothing sexy about that. Like, you know, innovating something is sexy. Marketing something is sexy. Managing inventory well, is not. How many times have you seen this? And we probably really need to wrap this up and have more conversations. But how many times have you seen someone finally gets their product, they order it, and X amount of units show up at their house, and they're like, where do I put all this? Oh, yeah, storage. Right? right? Because if I'm going to sell it at some point in time and I have to produce it at some level, I have to store that somewhere. And all of a sudden their front room becomes their storage shed Well, I had why this, they're selling the product off. I had this, man, we're doing so bad at ending this. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the companies that I'm working with, they have told me that they will do processing. So they'll take all of the inputs for the game and they're going to process it into a final uh, you know, a final product, ready for mm-hmm. sale product. And I'm like, great. And so I just checked that off the list and I'm like, okay, I've got my processing taken care of. We're okay. Well, so I have a conversation with this company and start finding out that, oh, there's the storage aspect because are they delivering it back to me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, ne- next time, like if you're watching the video of this, <laughs> next time you're going to see a stack of boxes <laughs> behind us. You know, are they delivering it back to me? Is it being stored there? Uh, who is doing all of the logistics of shipping? So, you know, if I sell right. online, yeah. are they going to run logistics for me? Or do I have to drive down to their place and be like, hey, I need to take some of these and, and, and you know, and drop Shipped. them off at the uh, at the yeah. post office? Like companies have full on logistics and it's a full time person who That's works right. their butt off. Yeah. <laughs> that is a complicated position to be in. And right. So, yeah. all right. I'm not saying anything else. I, yeah, so I don't know that we solved any <laughs> problems today, but we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, there will be some sort of follow-up. I don't know what that follow-up will be. I think we need to have a follow-up to this one. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Because there's a lot more discussion that can be had. So, okay. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. Mm-hmm.